0: Hello and welcome to Yes Group Spotlight. In the spotlight this week we have Yes, Kirk and Tillich, Lenzi and the Villagers who have very kindly shared their panel discussion with us. This is a fascinating discussion chaired by Ruth Wishart and the panel members are Ellen Hofer from EU Citizens for Independence, Anthony Salomoni, a political analyst and MD of European Merchants, Neil Richmond, Fine Gael European Affairs spokesperson and member of the Irish Parliament, and Alan Bissett, Scottish poet and activist. The event is called An Independent Scotland in the World, and with that panel you can see that there is an international perspective on Scotland in the world, and that makes for a fascinating discussion. The questions were coming in thick and fast, a lot of them from Alan Bissett, it has to be said. I think this discussion brings a, a new dimension to the debate on Scotland's place in Europe and in the world. Uh, thanks again to Yes Kirk and Tillich for sharing it with us. Hope you enjoy it.
1: Okay, well good evening everyone. My name is Ruth Wisher and it's my pleasure to welcome you to this evening's event on behalf of Yes Eastern Bartonshire. The theme tonight is an independent Scotland in the world, something for which many of us have long wished. The organisers have put together a cracking panel and they'll all give... A brief opening speech and after each contribution we'll maybe have a couple of questions or so and then we'll have a full question and answer at the end of the session. Anyway, let me introduce tonight's starry lineup. Helen Hofer is the creative director of EU Scots for Independence, a group of the new Scots who paid us the ultimate compliment of settling here. She's a citizen's rights campaigner and a writer and political activist. Neil Richard TD represents a Dublin constituency in the Irish Parliament and he's got extensive experience on European committees, including the EU Committee of the Regions. Anthony Salamone is Managing Director of European Merchants, a Scottish political analysis firm based in Edinburgh. Anthony's an authority on Scotland's European and external relations and the politics of Scottish independence In Europe and international affairs and Alan Bissett hardly needs an introduction to our Scottish audience. He's an actor of course, a playwright, an author and a long-time activist for the Yes movement so welcome everybody. What we're going to do folks is we're still waiting on Anthony to join us but in the meantime we're going to start with Neil Richard TD and all of our speakers have got a five-minute slot and they've also got to face the wrath of me and Deborah if they go over that time. Go for it Neil.
2: Thank you very much, Ruth. And thank you both uh, for the very kind invitation uh, to join this evening. Um, I wish it could be in the Bartonshire, but we'll make do, and as long as you all promise that I can come over uh, someday very soon, I'd really appreciate it. Um, My ties to Scotland, I am very proud of. I am a proud Ulster Scot. I'm very much a Graham on my mother's side, and I have an ancestor who fought with Wallace at the Battle of Falkirk, indeed he was a captain of his army. But I am here um, as an Irishman, a member of the Irish parliament, not to provide a distinct opinion because that wouldn't be appropriate and you've got really brilliant speakers who are going to do that but I want to give an element of a case study of my own country's um, experience of independence not a full independence but an independence for the vast majority of the country from the UK an independence that we will commemorate and mark in in one year's time something that's very important to me and I think what we have to remember is that Ireland is not perfect, it's far from perfect. We face many challenges every day, but certainly there are certain areas where I would argue that we do punch well above our weight, particularly on the global stage. And I want to let you know just a little bit, without going into the depth of the history, but something that we'll all bear in mind. So obviously Ireland gained independence from the UK in 1922. What we were faced straight after independence was a crushing economic war from 1932 to 1938, when massive sanctions were placed by the British government on Irish beef exports. Bear in mind the vast majority of beef at the time went to Great Britain. That followed a tumultuous period. We were neutral during the Second World War, but we still faced um, the devastation that many people did in terms of rationing, supply chain blockages, and of course our capital city, Dublin, was bombed a number of times. But things started to change as they changed from many places in the world in the 1950s and 60s, when Ireland, the fledgling independent state, started to take a slightly different approach to how it did business and how it approached the world. And that led to Ireland applying to join the EEC in the 60s. Now, we were flat out rejected because Pompidou, um, sorry, because de Gaulle had rejected the British application still bearing ill will from the Second World War. When Pompadieu came to power, things changed. Would we have gained accession to the EC without the UK also applying? Probably not. In fact, I could guarantee we didn't. However, now that the UK has sadly left the EU, we're still staying very much strong. We'll come back to that later. But when we joined the EC in 1973, 55% of our exports went to the UK. As of the last quarter of 2020, that was down to 11%. I think the tale of our 40-odd-year membership of the EU is probably the most important thing. It was a time of absolute modernisation, both socially and economically, for a small country of just under 5 million people with a Celtic history based off the edge of the continent of Europe. A few familiarities perhaps for some of the audience listening in. When my, mother, when my late mother um, got married in 1971, she was fired from her job in the bank because there was a thing called the marriage bar. In 1973, when she had my considerably older big brother, she was fired from a supposedly more progressive bank because she was now a mother. That changed in 1976 with the removal of the marriage bar by the Irish government directly because of European influence. And that's the sort of Ireland that we would have known pre-European membership. Today, Ireland is a member on its own right in the UN Security Council, for no no less than the fifth time possible. Now, the scary thing is when Ireland is a member of the UN Security Council, big things tend to happen in the world. The last time we were there, 9-11 took place. However, we are sitting at the moment being the country that has been delegated the responsibility in the UN Security Council to play an integral integral role in the foisting of a new deal with Iran between the world actors. And indeed our foreign minister is currently in Tehran. We have many things and I said many challenges in our country, but I think our global footprint, the most important aspect, has been our continuing European membership. And any of you who have painfully been caught up in the Brexit saga of the last five years will know that the EU never threw Ireland under the bus. The German car car manufacturers never came, neither did the Italian Prosecco makers. Rather, throughout the process, the European Union struck rigidly beside the Irish government. And indeed, a couple of weeks ago, when there was a wobble over Article 16 of the Northern Irish Protocol, within four hours and two phone calls from the Irish Taoiseach and it was resolved. We're a small country, but we very much see ourselves at the heart of Europe, and indeed an island, at the centre of the world. This is merely a case study that some of our cousins across the water may like to pay some attention to.
1: Thanks very much for all that, Neil. We certainly will be paying attention to that, but one of the statistics that you came up with here which resonated most with me was the fact that you'd gone from 55% of your exports to the UK to the most recent figure being 11%. Now, we have a lot of um, we get a lot of comment about the fact that we would have to face a, a hard border with England if, the, if, the, if we were in the EU but not uh, in the UK. How did you manage to work that trade export reversal?
2: And like the Scots, the Irish are very good at talking and they're very good at negotiating and going out and selling good product. We have probably the second best whiskey in the world, but we have very good beef, we have very good IT, we have very good digital, we have very good pharmaceuticals, we're the largest supplier to the world of Viagra, proportionately. But the most important thing that we have and that we've seen the real realisation of in the last number of weeks is our direct shipping links to the continent. The continent represents 48% of our exports. It's by far our biggest market. So we've seen a 600% increase of ships going from rosslare in the very Southeast of Ireland, to ports such as Roscoff, La Havre um, in, in France, but also Santander, Bilbao in Spain, Lisbon and Portugal, Ostend, Zabrug, and soon to be hopefully Diceberg.
1: The other thing that strikes me is that you went through a, a serious wobble as a lot of countries did um, and a lot of the people who had come back, a lot of the young people who had come back to Ireland left again, but you've rebuilt and you've rebuilt magnificently. And as you say, you've now got a huge international footprint. We'd be very curious to know how you pulled that trick off.
2: Well, I suppose it, it's the agility of being a small independent country. Um, One thing that will be remote, even though the world is facing an economic crisis of COVID, our exports are the only EU countries exports to have grown in 2020. Indeed, our economy continued to grow last year over 3%, despite um, the decline of COVID, and we look at the British economy, that's declined by 9%, ours has grown by 3%. It's being, as I said, it's investing in our strengths. So we have a very young population, we're a common law jurisdiction, we're an English speaking jurisdiction, but we're also a very welcoming country. Ireland, just like Scotland, is very much a migrant people. I emigrated myself for a couple of years. I'm a failed emigrant, but our experience of emigration across the world, be it Canada, America, Australia, historically, once upon a time, it was the Ulster Scots, the Scots-Irish who went to the south in the US from the 1840s. It was very much into the US, into Canada, and in recent years to far more far-frung places. But our experience wasn't always a great one. We have, may have seen signs of what 1950s or 1960s London was like for an Irish émigré. No blacks, no dogs, no Irish. Those were the signs put on boarding houses. And when my mother and my uncle, decided where they'd move from their very small border household in Cavan. My mother went to Dublin, got a job in a bank, age 17, met my father, was able to join sports clubs, was able to join a trade union. My uncle went to London, eventually got a job in the civil service, was blackballed, not only from his local Labour club, but also from his local Conservative club, going on to become a Liberal county councillor for some time. But I think the most important thing is we've learned from our experiences, which makes us a very welcoming country. Cade Mita Fulcher, 100,000 welcomes. Microsoft are currently based in my constituency, 72 different nationalities in a workforce of 2,500. And And that's how we will continue to build our place at the heart of the EU. We want to be the stepping stone for the rest of the world into the EU, particularly as the only native English-speaking country remaining.
1: Well, except that we might we might possibly join you. Uh, one, one last quick question from you. Um, Ireland was always renowned in the kind um, as you've just alluded to your mother's experience. It was originally a socially very conservative country, very much enthralled to the church. It's now a socially advanced country, a socially progressive one. Um, how important were the citizens' uh, assemblies in, in effecting that change?
2: Yeah, I'm a huge supporter of the Citizens' Assembly and my old lecturer from University, David Farrell, has been a consultant to the Scottish Government in recent years about this. And I suppose two of the most controversial issues that we faced in the last decade that I was delighted to be part of the campaigns for was being the first country to vote by referendum for marriage equality, and secondly, finally, giving back Irish women their reproductive rights. The former was, to be honest, the easy one. Despite preconceptions, it's very easy to sell love on the doorsteps. The second one was difficult, and it required a lot of really difficult conversations. For some politicians, for too long, weren't prepared to simply make a decision. I'm from a slightly younger generation. We idolised Roy Keane growing up, so we're probably a little bit brash. So I had no problem going from the outset back in 2014, before I was on the radar, declaring that absolutely I thought our reproductive laws were barbaric and needed changing. But the Citizens' Assembly gave the citizenry the say it gave politicians the proverbial kick up the backside to follow the will of the people, because far too long, the politicians dictated the will to the people. And you're right, Ireland socially was an extremely conservative country for far too long. Our 1937 constitution was run by the Catholic Archbishop of Dublin. But it was remarkable when <clears throat> when my grandparents, who were from the minority Protestant tradition, who would have seen themselves as British, but they stayed beside the line under the line that became the border, they would have seen Northern Ireland as the more progressive place, the more dynamic economy with Harland and Wolf, a good whiskey industry, the linen industry. But compare the Republic to Northern Ireland now, where Northern Ireland had to be brought kicking and screaming to provide for marriage equality. There's still talks of a petition of concern. They still haven't implemented the changes given by Westminster when it comes to reproductive rights. And you have the leading party in Northern Ireland who still wants playgrounds chained up on a Sunday.
1: OK, thanks for all of that, Neil. So we'll go straight on to our second speaker, who's Ellen Hofer, who, as I say, is one of the European Scots for independence, one of our new Scots, one of our very welcome new Scots. Ellen, take it away.
3: Hi everyone, so I'm Eden Hofer, I am indeed the Creative Director of EU Citizens for an Independent Scotland. Um, I joined that org now four years ago and I'd been a political kind of interested person when I was still living in Germany. I actually left Germany in my kind of mid teenage years, um, which was pretty pretty early. And initially moved to England, uh, did a couple of years of au pair jobs there and found that the UK was not a particularly mobile place in terms of mobility to progress in your career and Neil will be pleased to hear that I was very very happy to move to Cork and start working for a company there that was interested in hiring EU citizens and was more interested in their language skills than in their other background Um, specifically when it comes to you know formal education I left school before I had officially finished the formal educational path um, and was kicked out from home so that wasn't a possibility to me I moved to Ireland and stayed for a year to the day um, still have very fond memories and can see the advantages of Ireland as well as the disadvantages that come with a society that changes very very rapidly Um, and within the course of of just a couple of years I think Scotland has a lot of lessons to learn from Ireland and is is, should be grateful to do so Um, but has the advantage of looking at some of the difficulties and failures that took place along the way for Ireland which not least of all have to do with uh, integration being a sketchy issue when it's about a quick turnover of um, staff, for example. That that doesn't necessarily allow people to slot into the society. Uh, Scotland in itself has been a fantastic home for me for well, well over a decade by now. Um, I never thought that Scotland would become my home as quickly as it did and it was it was a matter of arriving and within six weeks kind of feeling like I was growing roots, which for me in the 10 years before that hadn't really happened, I was interested in politics and in fact at the time I was going out with somebody who was a single dad and his oldest child. And my partner at the time and I went to vote in the independence referendum, which actually for both of them was the first time they had ever voted in Scotland. (laughs) Um, And it was for independence, just for the record. Um, That was the first time that somebody got interested. Um, I was extremely disappointed at the outcome of that referendum. I had honestly not seen it coming and I couldn't believe it. I felt very differently about the 2016 Brexit referendum, I feel like I saw that one coming from miles off and months away. Um, And it kind of made pretty clear very quickly that there was a couple of issues that I hadn't really thought about up until that occasion, not least of all how well integrated EU citizens are within Scotland at the very least, and that because there hadn't been a real need for political representation there was no bodies really representing EU citizens interests. So that's um, basically when I decided look if I if I can't see it I'm gonna have to be it and teamed up with the EU citizen organization that was already in the independent space and that was EU citizens for an independent Scotland who had run a pretty significant and successful Um, Facebook page but hadn't really manoeuvred outside of that Facebook realm and they were respected for the content that they were posting and the thoughtful commentary that came with it but once I joined the organization it became pretty clear that we had a bigger responsibility beyond just posting nice things on Facebook for people to keep up to date with EU issues and independence and that had a lot to do with advocating for EU citizens. I also looked around in the independence movement and still felt like that there was a lack of diversity. It's, it's quite easy to say that somebody's welcome. It's harder to make them welcome by making space to say whatever they have on their minds. And that has changed quite a bit over the last couple of years. And I'm quite proud to have been part of that. I think we have quite a long way to go when it comes to representation from, from everybody else that we're currently not seeing on stage essentially. um, We are still lacking people from ethnic minorities or at least minorities in this country. Um, We're still kind of lacking more women. Uh, We're lacking people with different abilities and disabilities uh, however society might term them and all of those are things that we can tackle in a way that is an open discussion. I think prescriptive politics doesn't really benefit anybody. Now when it comes to Uh, Scotland, in Europe, and in the world, I think a lot of people, generally there's a bit of a problem of lip service versus the reality of things, and the lip service can quite often be that we're all aware and the international community this and international community that, um, if I look at what has actually happened in terms of policy and concrete policy, the only single person that has made concrete policies also in the room today, and that's Anthony Salamoni, who's written now two very, very granular and detailed papers on what Scotland needs to do. We can praise Anthony for that, but we also have to look at why there is such a vacuum around this on the Scottish political landscape, and that is just as important as recognising somebody's achievements. I'd really like to see quite a lot of the policies that you've suggested adopted by the Scottish government. And um, I'm struck by the fact that in this administration, we have seen more and more often that a lot is about a headline and very little is about the political factual follow-through that follows the headline. Um, So that is what I've been busy with in the last couple of years. And I hope to get going even more on that side. So that's it for me.
1: Thanks very much, Ellen. Two quick questions from me before we go to Anthony, who'll be able to talk to us about what you've, you've just uh, flagged up. Um, I wonder, uh, the, the problem, it seems to me, as a EU, uh, for EU citizens who've settled in Scotland is while uh, the Scottish Government keeps making welcoming noises to EU citizens about how much they're needed and how much we want you here, um, the Home Office still holds sway over the actual policy. How difficult, how threatened do EU citizens feel by the fact that that they've got to um, go through so many hoops to get full blown citizenship.
3: I can hold an entire evening's talk on all of these issues and still not be done. I think the reality is that we like to, uh, difficult topics are currently approached by the independence movement as well as the Scottish Government as a sort of default answer that it's, you know, not a devolved issue so we can't do anything about this. We have had the opportunity to influence policy that was in not devolved areas through areas that were devolved and I have actually two years ago prepared a a list of suggestions of things that Scotland could do to make migrants and not just EU citizens but migrants in general that are subjected to home office policies like the hostile environment more comfortable, more welcome and more safe in Scotland. None of these have been taken up so far. So I think from that perspective, we can't just look at individual areas of devolved policy. We have the ability to influence devolved policy by using and exploiting the very margins of what is and isn't devolved and make it more difficult for the British government to exploit people who are in Scotland. For example, for deportations, we we are currently collaborating when the British government comes knocking in Scotland on somebody's door and deports them from Prestwick or somewhere else in Scotland. That is people, Scots, new Scots, that are being deported on our soil with the support of Scottish police forces. Um, that, That kind of thing. I'm sorry, I have very little understanding for it when it comes to discrimination. Discrimination, not just in terms of nationality, but discrimination based on gender, based on anything, you know disability. Scotland doesn't really have a hang on the statistics of this, and the fewest amount of discrimination takes place in a way that people feel is reportable to the police, but if we don't understand the true extent of discrimination, we have no idea that there is a problem. All I can tell you, there is a problem, and we have the ability to collate these issues. These are all things that Scotland can do, and I'm looking for action on that.
1: We'll we'll let you amplify that again later on, Ellen, but um... Uh, Anthony uh, Salamone has now joined us and as you flagged up his uh, his work, perhaps we'll let him speak for himself now, Anthony. Thank
4: you Ruth and good evening everyone, thank you Deborah for the invitation. Uh, yeah, um, uh, I'm really pleased that we're having this event because I think that it's so crucial that we try to enhance uh, the quality and degree of our debate on EU international issues. Thank you very much, Ellen, by the way, for your kind reference to my work. Um, My most recent report is called The Global Blueprint, uh, which sets out how I would imagine uh, Scotland could have its foreign policy institutions under independence. It's a 40,000-word report, so it's quite extensive. Um, But I think, you know, as Ellen was alluding to, the reason why I want to write that kind of report is because I feel that that those kinds of Features of our independence debate are extremely lacking. You know, what kind of role would Scotland seek to play in the world? And of course, Neil mentioned how Ireland uh, has, you know, conducted its EU and foreign policies over the past few decades and the kind of role which Ireland seeks to play in the European Union and the world. Uh, There's a lot that Scotland can learn from Ireland, for sure, uh, but also to learn from other European states similar to Scotland uh, in terms of size like Denmark or like Finland, or even like Norway being outside the European Union, but still in terms of how it conducts the rest of its foreign policy. So thinking about Scotland in, in the world, it's such a, a huge topic, you know, it's really hard to, to parse it, but I, if I just pick up maybe three or four things that come to mind in terms of, you know, how, how could Scotland go, go about having an independent foreign policy? Well, one is I think is it's really important as I just mentioned to, to not try to be sort of a, a UK in miniature you know, I, when I was talking to people from my report, they're saying in terms of where embassies could be or where, how you might approach foreign policy, you know, how will this compare to what the UK is doing or how will this compare to the UK diplomatic network? That's not the basis that I'm comparing things on. I'm looking at Ireland, I'm looking at Finland, I'm looking at Denmark, where do they have their embassies? How do they structure their foreign policy? Because you know, when you're a smaller country like Scotland would be, you, know, you have to do things differently. You have to be strategic. Uh, you have to you know, decide um, what, what parts of the world, uh, what policy areas uh, you want to engage on because you can't cover everything. You know, if you want to invest in multilateral organizations, I think that's quite crucial. And Of course, Neil mentioned that with Ireland and the United Nations, that makes sense for Scotland. But also, even within the UN system, which is vast, you have to decide which particular institutions, which policy priorities you know, do you, can, are crucial for you to focus on, or areas where you want to be well known and where you feel that you have something to contribute to the world. And I think, you know, that's one of the core elements for me in this debate. It's not just about what would Scotland get from being in the European Union, what would Scotland get from being in the United Nations, what would Scotland be contributing to those organizations. It's, It's both those aspects. I think that's crucial. Especially in, in the EU, you know, it's not about you know just being in a single market because it's great to have a trading relationship with the rest of Europe, and that is extremely important. It's important to recognise the sort of the tangible interest-based benefits of European integration, but at the same time to talk about the values. What is the European Union for? European Union is about creating peace and prosperity on our continent and contributing to that. Uh, and you know, pr- uh, countries of the European progressively, voluntarily integrating themselves to pursue. Uh, you know, common solutions to shared challenges and that Scotland would actively want to be part of that and Scotland would contribute to sustaining that. It's kind of dialogue which I frankly don't think that we have much of, uh, and I'd like to see that a lot more. Um, of course, Brexit is you know been the fundamental area of focus for us, uh, and that's very natural. Uh, but, but to think more broadly about these kinds of questions, you know, of, of how, you know, what kind of member state would Scotland seek to be? You know, if you look at countries like Denmark, for instance, Denmark has a lot of opt-outs considering how small it is and arguably has a difficult relationship with the EU in some respects. You know, I see it it perfectly, I can see it perfectly easily Scotland falling into a Denmark scenario. I don't want to see that. I want to see Scotland actively choose to be part of EU policies and including having a really honest uh, discussion on why it might make sense for Scotland to join the euro and not just say we would be forced to join the euro, but considering country like Ireland or country like Finland could be part of the Euro project for over 20 years. Might it make sense for Scotland to, you know, that's a discussion which I think we should at least have rather than rule it out uh, and have a negative framing to it. Um, and then, of course, there are, you know, the broader questions of relations with other partners out with the European Union. The United States, I'm sure, would be important for Scotland in many ways, as it is for Ireland, but in you know, some different respects. And, of course, the UK, you know, that, that, that will be a, you know, a major point for Scotland, particularly initially. I think you know, that the intensity of the bilateral relationship between Scotland and the UK might diminish over time, but in the formative stages of independence, it would be quite crucial. And obviously you want to have a mature, constructive relationship. Uh, and consider uh, how, you know, how we relate on these islands, uh, because you know, there'll be a triangulation between you know, Scottish Ireland, Scotland, Scotland, UK, and then you know, Ireland, UK as well. You know, what happens to things like the British Council, those are sensitive issues. Uh, which require a really you know, mature discussion across all three parties. Uh, and I think Scotland needs to be able to you know, say that it's going to give due deference to the existing members, if you like, uh, of how they want to proceed on those things. Uh, but so a lot so many issues to discuss, I'll, I'll leave it there. But I guess I just maybe one point to conclude. You know, I think we have to be realistic that Scotland would be on the geographical periphery of the European, as, as Ireland is. You know, the question is, you know, do you want to be in the political periphery or do you want to be in the political centre, political core? Uh, I think Scotland should choose to be in the political core.
1: Can I just ask you quickly, I don't want you to distill a 40,000 word report um, in in 30 seconds, but if you were um, saying to um, an an independent Scotland's um, uh, foreign office or trade team um, that they could concentrate on two or three specific niche areas for Scotland, as as Neil has articulated about Ireland, as, as we saw from Leslie's film on Estonia, they went in for a niche market. What would you say should be Scotland's um if you like top three priorities in terms of, of um creating a niche market for itself?
4: Do you mean just in terms of foreign policy generally? In no, I know I don't you know, mean
1: that. i really, sorry, I'm not not putting this well. i no, I mean in yeah. terms of, of um what we do, whether it's you know biotechnology or renewables oh, or you okay. know what industry
4: yeah. we point ourselves at? Yeah, I think you know I suppose the thing with that is you know if you're trying to Particularly if you're trying to develop profiles of excellence in the world of soft power profiles, now Scotland is is lucky to have so many to choose from. Uh, you know, I'm sure there has to be something in there between a the link of renewable energy and the you know natural environment and climate change. There has to be some nexus there that makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, something to do with higher education, of course, as well. And and the of the, the you know I don't know what particular research elements. I suppose there's always a challenge in government that you need to you may want to try to you know. Uh, uh, facilitate innovation, but obviously government is not, you know, you don't want to pick winners or losers, you know, I think there's always a balance there, but in that sort of, you know, research excellence frame, of course, Scotland is a highly educated workforce, <laughs> as, as other European countries do. So I see something in that. Uh, and then, you know, of course, this sort of, uh, Scotland's geography is an element of interest. I'm not sure how that links through to, to what you just asked, Ruth, but, it, you know, the, the sort of, uh, everyone is interested in the Arctic now, you know, in a way that they weren't before. Scotland has a, you know, a, a favourable geography to be a natural convener of parties uh, on those kinds of issues. And maybe there's some link there to the broader sort of, you know, elements of what's going on, especially as the climate changes.
1: Okay, thanks, Anthony, and we've got a lot of questions of which have come in now and I'm going to throw them around the panel in a minute, but, but um, last but not least, we've got um, one of my favourite actors and playwrights and writers and all-round renaissance man, Alan Bissett, and he's going to come on and give us his five minutes' worth of wisdom now. Alan.
5: Thank you, Ruth. This has been super interesting for me. The whole subject of uh, Scotland and the international stage, there's so much discussion within the Yes movement and within Scotland. Generally about domestic issues, especially just now, for obvious reasons, or UK-wide issues, and in a lot of ways, I think a lot of Scots, a lot of people in Britain, have looked at Brexit as a UK issue rather than seeing it for what it is, which is a an international issue, which is fundamentally about Scotland's relationship with the rest of the world and Britain's relationship with the rest of the world and Britain's relationship with Scotland, obviously, and. One of the things I think is a feature of Britishness is a certain insularity, with concern with itself as a, a you know a, a preeminent nation among nations of the world, which used to rule a fifth of the globe or, or whatever it was. Britain's idea of itself is so large in front of itself that it obscures almost everything else but also Britain's relationship with the Anglophone world, America, Canada, Australia. These are the points of international connection that most people who grew up in the UK have with the international world. And I think one of the features of the independence debate, because I was forced to confront the idea of a Scotland outside of Britain, was I was forced to think probably for the first time of what Scotland's relationship to the international world beyond the anglophone world could be what is scotland's relationship with europe what is scotland's relationship to all sorts of different geopolitical factors that didn't involve america or canada or australia now really what it comes down to in a lot of ways this discussion clearly no every way because there are people here who can talk very knowledgeably about the architecture of the eu and uh, you know the, the the bureaucratic structure these elements of the discussion are vital. We have to furnish ourselves with actual knowledge about how things work, how structures work but one of the things that Scotland has actually been working out within itself for the last well for the last 300 years but specifically for the, the referendum decade has been cultural and I think the cultural argument is still important. I don't think it's The end of the argument, I don't want Scottish independence just for cultural reasons. I think it would be better for most people in the nation. But a lot of the discussion that Scotland is continually having with itself is about culture. And the fact that I'm sitting here tonight listening to three people talk with immense insight and understanding and knowledge about the Scottish situation who weren't even born in Scotland, makes me feel quite inspired about Scotland's potential future as an independent nation. Because I kind of get the perspective that you've got, the three of you have got, on Scotland by talking to other Scots. Of course, Scots talk to other Scots all the time. Scots form a sort of common understanding between each other of what maybe Scotland is or could be. But it's only when you hear the opinions of people who were only born in your country, who've maybe moved to your country or who want to form a positive international relationship with your country or who find your country interesting as an issue of study, that you start to form what your country is in the round because you need to see your country as other people see it. Just as everybody as a person needs to see themselves sometimes as other people see them that Scotland having a conversation about itself on the international stage is the most healthy thing that we could have, because so much of Scotland's conversation about itself is quite stifling. And I think that is uh, partly as a result of the cultural forces of the union. So I'm not going to really talk about the specifics of Scotland's relationship with the EU. There's there's people here who know a, a, a lot more about that than me, and I'm here to learn. in that respect, but I think there's a cultural dynamic. Scotland possibly going through a very healthy convulsion in its relationship with with Britain that might make it a more healthy outward-looking nation at the end of it.
1: We've got lots of questions uh, coming in now and um, I'm just going to chuck some of them around. one of the first ones that came in was what the panel felt about um, Scotland initially applying to join EFTA in order to better access trade with Europe and free movement within Europe. And that's from Angie. I think maybe I'll, I'll throw that at Neil and Anthony. Neil first.
2: Uh, Why well, go for a half pint when you can have a pint. Um come all the way into the EU it's a much better place than EFTA um, Norway doesn't have the say over how laws are created that how, dictate a lot of what their life does but yet they still pay in to the EU just to get access to the market. I would very much see um, that if Scotland were to vote for independence that they'd be welcome in the EU it would be in the EU's interest to have Scotland in it and a lot of the barriers that may have been put down by the EU at the last referendum by the likes of José Manuel Barroso, I can confirm are
4: gone at this stage.
1: That's interesting. Anthony?
4: Yeah, I um, really don't agree with the idea that Scotland has sort of join EFTA as a sort of interim thing. You know, I think if you want to join the European Union, you should apply to join the European Union, and you work with the EU to have an association agreement, which would cover sort of that interim period, you know, between the point of independence and the point of accession to the EU. Uh, of course, that association agreement would have to be different than normal ones. You know, I hope it would be much closer and that would include, you know, a, a large degree of participation perhaps in the single market. You know, that is something that would be need to be negotiated and that would be up to uh, what the EU be willing to do. Uh, but I think that, you know, that, that is this, when we talk about uh, the process for Scotland joining the EU, there's a lot of emphasis on how quickly it, it might go. You know, I think we need to be realistic because it would take Several years. I think it would take about four to five years, but the key point is not to try to, you know, circumvent the EU accession process, the point is to try to get a really good association agreement, uh, and then that would glide the path for Scotland to join the EU.
3: Okay. I have an opinion on this too, um, I agree with both of them, um, and I think it's important to look at this through the lens of what Europe thinks of the UK and how it left the EU and what its role was within the EU. Uh, Would Scotland like to join the EU or the associated countries of the EU with the same cherry picking attitude or is it full on committed to the values of the European Union? Okay, thanks for that. There's one other question that's specific to Neil, so I'm just going to throw it
1: to him right now, because um, it's a question about the ferry link between Ireland and Le Havre, um, how did these come about, um, when did they initiate, and, and can you see an alternative link for Scotland to pursue exposure to, to the continent, that's from Maureen, Neil. Yeah,
2: well, there's m- multiple direct ferry links between Ireland and the continent, and they're historic, they've be going back to the time of the wild geese. Um, but they've really developed in the last few months. So there's been new links um, to Laharve, but also to Dunkirk. And they have come from work by the Irish government with our French counterparts. France of course is now our closest neighbor in the EU. We have a really close relationship. But a lot of these direct ferry links, they're driven by the market. So we struggled as an Irish government and as the chair of the Brexit committee to get Irish exporters to look to direct shipping for so long because going through the land bridge, Hollyhead onto Dover was quicker, it was cheaper. But as you'll remember, at the, just before Christmas, the COVID restrictions put in by the French government in relation to lorry drivers forced the hand of the market because we saw the tailback of trucks being diverted at Kent going to airfields, abandoned airfields, and people were going like, well, this could happen in a no deal Brexit context in a fortnight as well so that forced people and hence we saw that huge growth we actually saw ships that were previously going from Belfast um, to Stranraer and Ryan moved over from Dublin to go or to Dublin and rosslare to go from Dublin and rosslare direct to the continent absolutely can work for any country but it requires a lot of effort not just from the governments but from the commercial sectors and once the ferry lines can show that you can turn a profit on these things and they can they move over very quickly and the one thing we have now is it may still be taking longer but it's the exact same price now and it's massively more reliable to go direct from ireland to our biggest market in the continent. now i see
1: anthony noting there did you want to add anything to that before i move on to another question anthony Well, there's one that I think that um, Alan might uh, possibly, I'm not going to read all of this because it's very, very long, but it's uh, allegedly from Robert de Bruce. Um, I think that's probably an implausible contributor, but anyway, he says, um, and I'm assuming it's a he with that handle, the problem with Scotland, in my opinion, is we still have the religious bigots that still support the union. Scots who follow this line must be prepared to see the better benefits that would happen in an independent Scotland, breaking the mold created hundreds of years ago. Uh, with the belief that we're better off in this union. So, um, Alan, I know that you've got some thoughts on um, both religious bigotry and on on the union support that sometimes stems from it. Would you like to comment?
5: Um, Okay. Uh, Well, I have written about this in the past, about um, the links between Scottishness and what I suppose you might call um, a British slash Rangers identity. Now, this whole thing would probably... Um, no really make quite the same amount of sense to Ellen or Anthony but might to Neil um, because uh, there, there are certain strands of Scottish culture, uh, Scotland's identity and you can't deny that these are part of Scotland's identity, they exist within Scotland so they have to be looked at and discussed, that identify not only with the union but with the actions of uh, the Brits in Ireland and Northern Ireland And we are now only really starting to, I think, properly look at these because for a long time it's all been focused on football and Rangers' relationship to Celtic. Uh, And now because of the independence referendum and Brexit and, you know, uh, where Brexit leaves Northern Ireland and a possible border pole between Northern Ireland and the, uh, the Republic of Ireland you know, support for Welsh independence, all these things are related phenomena. Now, um, I know I want Scotland to be independent and I want Scotland to have a good relationship with the rest of the nations on these islands. And that includes England. That includes Ireland, uh, Wales. The Welsh will make their own decisions about about where they're going to go. I want that to be the case. And I think that will only ever be the case when Britain disintegrates, and the Welsh and the English and the Irish and the Scots view each other as equals, and because of the particular political and historical circumstances involving the British Isles, that are hundreds of years of it, that is at the moment extremely difficult. So I'm not going to. I don't want to start, uh, you know, using terms like religious bigotry. People cling on to certain identities because they don't have hope in their life. That's what that's what it comes down to. The vast majority of working class people, right across the British Isles, feel that they've got no economic say in their, their own immediate circumstances. They can't control the forces that they are subject to, so they cling on to these identities. I think we we have to get better at respecting each other's identities because so much of the the dialogue around identity has become so fierce, it's become so tribal, and it's become so, um, I don't know, people people now want to defeat a perceived enemy. I think there is a healthy democracy and dialogue-based future for all the nations of the British Isles to reach independence that might have a strong benefit for everybody at the end there.
1: Well, that's a very charitable view, I think. I don't know if, if Ellen's got any view in this, but I mean, I've got a very vivid memory because I used to live a couple of blocks away. I've got a very, very vivid memory of George Square the morning after the, 19, uh, the 2014 referendum. And there were the, the Square had been filled with rather disappointed um, Yes supporters with, with saltires. And then there was what I can only describe as a fairly rabid invasion by people bearing the Union flag coming in and, um, and causing a certain amount of mayhem now. That seemed to me, as an onlooker, such a deep-seated, kind of visceral reaction by the Union supporters that I'm not sure how you get rid of that strand of tribalism, as you put it. Do you have a thought on that, Ellen? Ellen as a, as a,
3: I absolutely do. Um, this discussion is absolutely visceral and tribal. Um, but the answer to it is not a new one and not one that is out of sight. Um, I'm a German, a, a German who has gone through through her life being confronted with her country's history and very consciously has to deal with that still, even in Scotland. And I'm, I'm glad for it because it's taught me a hell of a lot about people and about um, how to overcome xenophobia. Xenophobia seems to be currently thought about and limited in terms of nationality, but that's not actually what the term stands for. Xenophobia is fear of otherness, and otherness can be put onto all sorts of things, blue eyes, brown eyes, stupid shoes, great shoes, whatever you want to tribalize. Um, the mechanics of it essentially boil down to xenophobia, and when it comes to fighting xenophobia. Uh, It used to be a fairly useful mechanism for more or less cavemen migrants that were swarming all over whatever the continent was shaped like at the time to distinguish between their group and other groups. At some point, the only way to overcome xenophobia is for people both to settle down in some ways into a society and for our personal identity and our personal worldview to include people beyond our own tribe. So the definition of tribe needs to open and the condemnation of otherness cannot be about condemning other human beings it can be about condemning other people's opinion but you can never go oh they're just shit people because shit people are just people like you who believe something else quite strongly Um, and if you're going to fight xenophobia if you're going to fight the othering of people you have to find the human common denominator And this is the hardest thing. It's not an answer I particularly like. I am not a person of great patience nor of particular interpersonal skill, but it seems fairly obvious that this is what has to be done. If you want to convince somebody, you can't just tell them they're wrong. You can say, what is the motivation behind this and why I can relate to that in a different way.
1: Okay, thanks for that. I'm going going to move us on now, because there's there's questions coming in thick and fast on quite different subjects. Um, There's one uh, specifically from Stuart, from Neil, who says, um, Neil, what are your thoughts on the euro? Currency is a huge issue in the move to independence in Scotland, and if joining the EU, the euro is part of the deal. I'm not sure that's entirely accurate, but this has always been painted as as a negative here. What's your view on that, Neil?
2: Yeah, well, under the Copenhagen criteria, you don't have to accept the, the euro. And I remember Ian Blackford speaking very convincingly on Sky News about this because that was a misnomer to point out. But you do have to aspire to a close relationship. Personally, um, joining the euro has been one of the best things that Ireland has done. And I have to bring back to the pre-73 days that we never truly got our independence until we joined the EC. The Chancellor of the Exchequer still set our exchange rate. When the pound devalued in the early 90s, the punt, as our pound is called devalued as well. So there's a huge, um, I think, for those of us who are really pro-European, and I see myself equally as Irish and European, the Euro has a huge benefit. And I must say, on a really practical point of view, I know we don't really use cash anymore, but I remember going on holidays to Spain and France and not having to fiddle around with pesetas and try and work out. And I do remember when I moved to Brussels, there's a very nice guy, but he didn't quite get it from Northampton, who sat beside me regularly at lunch, um, who worked for a certain other political party. And every day he's there like, oh, that's... you know, I'd say oh yeah I got my lunch it was 10 euro and he goes oh that's about £7.50 I was like I don't care <laughs> don't use sterling in Ireland we've never we haven't used sterling in the 20s we've had the euro since 2002 and um, certainly I'm sure you see a lot in TV where you, you still get a lot of people there's a famous clip of an Irish politician why don't you use the sterling and, and you're just like well, maybe it's a problem for Scotland in a few years time but they're not too bad.
1: Well, that, that brings us neatly on to currency. I know that Ellen wants to come in here, but I want to come to Anthony first because, as you know, there's an ongoing debate, um, Anthony, and there, ever has, there has been ever since the Growth Commission, which is now out of date anyway, thanks to Brexit, but but there is an ongoing debate about a Scottish currency. What's your,
4: your take on that? I think that if Scotland were to decide to become independent, it would make sense to establish a Scottish currency sooner rather than later. Uh, so I would not sign up to the the growth commission idea of of waiting to you know meet the the test that they set out. You know, I mean, I, of course, it needs to be in a in a managed way.
3: And you wanted to win. Yeah, I was actually going to mention the Growth Commission as well, and I think that there's a, a different point to be said about the Growth Commission in a, in a wee while. But um, it is technically just not possible to join the euro straight from being dependent on the UK pound. So from that point of view, there is just no really sensible option. We We don't want to hinge ourselves. Ireland came into the EU with the establishment of the euro, so the same rules did not apply to Ireland. But the rules that have since been established mean that new accession countries that are entering the EU have to have fiscal control over their currency and about the environment in which that currency operates so we can't just go oh you know we're, we're going to be this now we establish an independent currency and then we have the ability to join the euro if scotland so chooses further down the line when it comes to the growth commission you as you rightly said it's completely outdated at this point another really uh, pertinent point when it comes to international relations in Scotland that was let down by the Growth Commission was the fact that we signed away our foreign aid budget to be yeah. spent by the UK government and yeah, that's,
1: that, that. I think we've agreed that we've parked the Growth Commission so I was really trying to look at where we go looking forward rather than... I'm about to
3: mention that because the First Minister in 2019 in her programme for government announced a new white paper and that was 2019, a year and a half ago, and there hasn't been an update to the white paper since. So these are points that I think is important for the movement to continue pushing because exactly those things are what matters in the context of international relations.
1: Neil, would you like to give us a... a, Because I know that you went through a quite different uh, passage early on when you became independent, but that was for obvious reasons that, you know, that totally different set of circumstances and a totally different journey to independence. But in terms of Scotland and the Euro, what would you advise?
2: yeah i i would advise that you get fiscal control first and then you move on to the euro um as not every eu member state is in the euro not every eu member state has euros 19 out of the remaining 27 but certainly for a small member state like ireland um, that doesn't necessarily have the natural mineral wealth of somewhere like denmark or other countries i think it has given us great ability and bear in mind the president of the euro group is irish the chief economist of the Eurogroup of the Eurozone is Irish, and the European Commissioner for Financial Services is also Irish. It gives you great influence, and Ireland is very much a country that sees itself post-Brexit um, as being a player in financial services. We're not going to compete with the City of London or something like that. We're not Paris or Frankfurt, but we do very much see a complementary role um, for back office and middle offices. And we've already taken in six and a half thousand financial services jobs direct from, um, as a result of Brexit, direct from Great Britain. And we wouldn't have that. The euro is a massive part of our arsenal um, as a small trading country. And I would recommend it. But and I really do. I really think it's, it's something that is worth aspiring to. Um, and there shouldn't be an emotional attachment, you know, and I think there's a huge scope for growth for
5: small countries as well. Alan, do you have anything to say on that before we move on to a different topic? Uh, I do. I've got a question for Neil, mainly. Um, Neil, everything you've said this evening has been fascinating to me uh, because you are an alternate reality that Scotland could have. It's like, here's what you could have won, you know, like if we'd voted yes in 2014. Uh, I think a lot of people in uh, the independence movement are looking at Ireland's fortunes over the years. Now, obviously Ireland has had a difficult journey, and we're also looking at that, you know, and deciding what to do and what not to do politically. But we're also looking at the prize at the end of it, which is the position that you've got where you are backed by the EU, welcomed on the international stage, and are a modern, progressive, functioning, healthy democracy. I think the question I've got, and this is born from ignorance about Ireland's internal uh, politics, I suppose, so I, I'm waiting for you to enlighten me here. What is the state of Ireland in terms of social provision?
2: Yeah, and look, this is, Ireland is a different economic model. We, we're not the size of the UK. We are smaller. And a lot of people will be very critical that our health service isn't as good in the Republic as it is in Northern Ireland. We do not have the NHS. But globally, Um, When we actually detach ourselves, and we look at all the factors, Ireland is consistently in the top five countries in the world. Um, So on the happiness index, for whatever weight you put in the happiness index, we sadly slipped from first to second last year, but we'll get the Norwegians next year. Um, But I was, this is, you talk about Ireland's very difficult journey in independence, bear in mind Irish politics is still generated by the parties that delivered independence, just varying shades. We don't necessarily have the strict left-right divide. We don't necessarily have much of a, a unionist rump in the Republic, even though I'm quite happy saying that my family a hundred years ago would have been strong unionists who saw themselves as British. And I'm very much part of the religious minority. And Scotland has the opportunity, if they were to go to choose it, to enter a very different world. We became independent just after the Great War, you know, going into the Great Depression, going into Second World War, the Cold War. The world is tough now, but it's nothing compared to the 20th century, Um, and certainly a lot of the, like the Ireland that became independent was a very different place. Democracy was young, colonialism still existed. So we're going into whatever some people will say, and people always refer to the good old days, life has never been better, in my opinion. You know, we're living longer, we're healthier, people are more educated. We actually have moved towards, but haven't achieved an element of gender equality and tolerance. And that's something very good. And I suppose the the great outlier in Irish political concerns, I'd probably be viewed as a conservative. But looking at the British Conservative Party, I couldn't see myself going in there at all. So I think that ability to be a small, small country lends itself to progressive social development. It took us a long time to get there. But when change happens, it happens rapidly and greatly. Bear in mind homosexuality was illegal 30 years ago in Ireland. Divorce only passed by 50,000 votes two decades ago. We still had the term illegitimate for children born out of wedlock. That's all shifted and I maintain that if we hadn't joined the EC in 1970s, that wouldn't have happened as quick as it did. Our European membership gave us the outreach to the world, to a more secular vision and indeed to a greater access to North America that we wouldn't have had if we had remained supposedly independent but shelved off from the rest of the world, wholly reliant on our previous, um, whatever term you want to use, the UK's previous relationship with Ireland.
1: Anthony, do you want to add to that? Because that seems, I mean, the, the, the very fact, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting hearing Neil say that you can actually jettison a lot of baggage relatively quickly in the, in the right context. Would you agree with that?
4: Yes, I think creating a Scottish state would be a sort of once-in-a-century opportunity to to really think how Scotland would want to constitute itself across all areas of society. Sure. Um, I also think that you know Neil was mentioning that obviously Ireland became independent in a totally different world, and of course the consequence of that is that the world is is highly codified. You know, international relations, international law, and so on. This question of you know joining the European Union, joining the United Nations you know, signing up to all the sorts of things that already exist. Uh, And and I think that that's something that needs to be appreciated more in our debate, because a crucial part of that is is Scotland's relationship with the UK uh, and that, you know, how a referendum would need to be agreed with the UK and that Scotland could never really become truly independent unless the UK was on board with the referendum, worked constructively through negotiations, then recognised Scotland as a state. Uh, and I think that that, you know, is very different from how things might have been if Scotland was seeking to become independent in another era, um, but international relations is is very legalistic these days, and I think we need to take that into account too.
1: Are you saying, Anthony, or maybe I'm picking you up wrong, are you saying that you agree that we have to wait for a Section 30 clause to be passed by the UK government before we can progress?
4: Yeah, no, I said there's no, um, I think there needs to be a political agreement between Scotland and the UK. It doesn't really, I mean, I've written about this quite a lot. It doesn't matter whether it's a Section 30 order, an Act of Parliament, an Edinburgh agreement, or just sort of, a, you know, whatever.
1: You're saying that, but you're saying that legally and politically Westminster has to be on board?
4: I'm saying it's not a legal issue, it's a political issue, you know, it, it, it is a, I mean, I've written about this a lot, you know, there are three main routes, three main stages to independence, a referendum, the negotiations, and then recognizing Scotland as an independent state. Across all of those stages, you know, the Scottish government and the UK government have to work together. If they don't, independence won't happen, you know, in the sense of, you know, Scotland being able to join the EU or join the United Nations or being recognized by any other state in the world. And I think that, you know, we need to be cognizant of that doesn't, this is not a legal issue. It doesn't matter whether the Scottish Parliament or the UK Parliament has a power or an authority. And you know, I think we can all agree, at least I hope we all agree, on, on the, the doctrine of popular sovereignty in Scotland. I mean, if England wants to believe in parliamentary sovereignty, that's fine. You know, it's not a question of whether or not a referendum is legal. It's a question of does anything happen after it, you know. Uh, and that, I think we need to re- recognize it's a political issue, needs a political solution. It's not about, you know, who has a legal authority under what.
1: Okay, we've got a quite different question coming out. Does anybody else want to throw their 10 cents worth in on that before we move on?
3: Yeah, Yeah. I I couldn't agree more. The pressure campaign that is needed to make it more difficult for the UK government to say no, then to say yes to us is what the pivotal issue here is. And that's ultimately not one to be won in court, though. Whatever route we go down, I, I still doubt the validity of going down a route and then leaving it to the UK government to fight that route in court. That doesn't seem very smart in any case. Currently, Boris Johnson and whoever else is the prime minister um, essentially gains votes in their in their voter base from being tough on the Scots. And as long as that is the case, they have no interest in changing the answer to whatever Scotland does in terms of independence. So it's about changing the pressure points. Alan?
5: Okay, Uh, what are the pressure points that we change? I mean, this is where I find myself in difficulty because what you're saying, Anthony, is that without the consent of the UK government, Scotland will not be independent. But the UK government has got absolutely no motivation to facilitate Scottish independence. So, where does that leave us? You know, I still feel like an appeal to the United Nations to recognise the independence of small nations, the self determination, there is a precedent set by the 2014 referendum, whereby the UK government recognised the mandate of the Scottish government to hold an independence referendum. Now, it seems as though the route that the UK government is going to go down is, is simply one of the denying democracy. Now, Neil will probably be able to talk quite extensively about the history of the UK government denying democracy of, of one of its immediate concerns. The fundamental mistake that Scotland could ever make, or, or proponents of Scottish independence could ever make, is to resort to violence, right? That, that, that for me, is a fundamental because all of us have have observed what has happened to uh, the island of Ireland over the last 100 years and how long it took to work that through. The scars still remain. Um, But that really does place us in a very difficult position, because how do we advance our democratic rights if we cannot be recognised as independent on the world stage without the UK government's consent? That, That... this is funda- this is the fundamental discussion about Scottish independence right now.
1: Yes, it, it absolutely is. But unfortunately, we've got stacks of other questions and other subjects that, and we could actually spend all night about talking about this because those of us who are. Involved in this non-stop, or, or and talk about it non-stop, um, would, would probably like to. But we've got lots of questions and lots of different subjects. And there's one that um, I'd like to take now from Kenneth, who says he would be really interested in hearing the panel's opinion on the position an independent Scotland should take with reference to defence. Should they join NATO or position themselves as neutral, like Ireland? And as I say, that's from Kenneth Anthony. I,
4: this, this is clearly a, a contested issue, isn't it? You know, we know that. Um, but I think uh, the short sort of version is I think that Scotland should join NATO uh, and I think that you sort of work your way out uh, on you know three different levels one is that you know what would be in the best interest of Scotland's security and defense requirements I believe that's from joining NATO secondly is when you think about Scotland's allies you know countries in the European Union countries like the Baltics and Poland uh, how can how will Scotland be contributing to supporting them I think that's also through NATO and then another sort of a third level is you know besides once you satisfy those two Thoughts: uh, What makes the most sense in terms of Scotland having uh, good relationships with countries that are important to it, and that includes countries in the European Union, the United States, and again, it good through NATO. I think that neutrality, you know, makes sense for certain countries, and maybe, certainly if it makes sense for Ireland, and of course, then that's good. Uh, but I think for Scotland, has never been a neutral country. It's strange for it to try to become one. I think neutrality, at least for Scotland, would be outmoded and an abdication of uh, the important role which Scotland could play. And I think that. There is an inherent contrast here. If you look at countries like Norway, or, for instance, you know, Norway is is known worldwide as a peace builder and mediator. But when it comes to its own defence and security, it's it's an active member of NATO, uh, and I think that that is a perfectly sensible role that Scotland could fulfil as well.
1: Neil, what do you what's your take on that as a, as a country which went a different route?
2: Yeah, and again, this comes down to the context of when Ireland became independent. Ireland had to sit out the Second World War. We weren't in a financial or geographic position uh, to take a side. And obviously, I think there was only one member of the Irish Parliament at the time who decried the fact that we didn't take the Allied side. And then there was a couple of subversives involved in the IRA who tried to recruit uh, Nazi support for Irish things, uh, Irish independence movements and taking back the north. But I think the concept of neutrality has changed greatly and it's changing greatly for Ireland. Um, One of the things that Ireland's most proud of, and it's probably why we got re-elected to the UN Security Council, is an unbroken record of over over 60 years of peacekeeping. Um, Sadly, we've lost 82 soldiers in the course, but that's keeping the peace literally at the moment in the Golan Heights, where you have the Israel-Palestine situation on one side and the war in Syria on the other they're genuinely exposed to some of the most dangerous conflicts in the world. It's people in Chad, seven Irish soldiers killed in the Congo. I hope some of you have got the chance to see The Siege of Jadoville, a brilliant film that was on Netflix recently. Um, but within the EU, the idea of neutrality has changed so much. Even in the 20 years I've been politically active, it's no longer about... Militarization. It's no longer about troops on the ground. And one of the things that we face, and we have a lot of referenda on European issues, we're constitutionally obliged to, and it's the constant refrain, again, of certain Eurosceptic parties, even though they're, they're Eurosceptic light parties compared to some of the continents and in England, is that well, we don't know to an EU army. And there's this, and they play on the sense of fear that young Irish men and women are going to be conscripted into a European army and sent to fight in Iraq. Well, that's absolute nonsense, when we talk about closer cooperation when it comes to defence and security, it's intercepting um, terrorists who are blowing up the Bacalan or going on stabbing raids and are using Ireland as financial cover. You know, I sit five kilometres now from one of uh, Al-Qaeda's main money men in Western Europe, who is a known person to the Irish police. We have maintained our neutrality with great difficulty. It is becoming more and more irrelevant to be honest and it's the same for the other neutral countries in the eu who we do a lot of work with like austria finland and sweden we want to cooperate it's in our interest to cooperate and um, with european partners to protect ourselves against cyber threats because ultimately if the russian navy decided to invade ireland tomorrow we would rely on the royal navy to intercept them we're not we have you know, observer status as NATO's as any Western European is entitled to. And realistically, it's a bit of a fallacy. We were never neutral. If a British pilot crashed in Ireland during the Second World War, they were just handed over um, to the border to Northern Ireland. If a German pilot crashed, they were interned. Irish generals gave all the weather reports to the US, the Allied forces ahead of the D-Day landings. During the Cold War, we were obviously closer to the US than we were in Moscow. Many Irish people were arrested for going over to internationals in Moscow. We still have one Irish person who's facing extradition to the US because he was involved with the North Koreans in currency um, scandals. So I think neutrality, as we know it, is a bit of a myth you know, we're not all Switzerland who are armed to the teeth and full of gold. Um, So I think we have to be relevant that international cooperation does include security and defense, but that doesn't mean sending soldiers or tanks abroad. And it's actually a big question in Ireland because we've had massive solidarity from our European partners over the last couple of years. But one thing that's always lacking is the fact that the EU budget is increasing in terms of defence and security for very good reasons. You can ask anyone who lives in Nice or Berlin why the, those security spendings are increasing. And we look at the Russian different disinformation, French elections, German elections, but yet Ireland's contribution to that, even though we're now net contributors to the European budget, is so small. And to be honest, we're rightly starting to feel a little bit of a laggard when it comes to defence just as much as we come under pressure when it comes to things like climate change and possibly even taxation.
1: Okay, you seem to be talking about a kind of neutrality light. Does, does anybody else want to comment on that before we move on to another topic? Okay, well um, we're back in Europe now. Um, from Kevin, he, he said that the passion towards the EU in his opinion is immense and the pain felt by no voters in 2014 is now been felt by remain voters who who voted no. Do you think, he says on the independent side, we're making a powerful enough point that we will hopefully get back into Europe? In other words, there's been a suggestion as we know from the polling organizations that um, not only that um, some no voters might move to yes because of, of the Brexit vote, but also some may go in the other direction. Any
3: thoughts on that, Ellen? I, I do. I mean, we've spent the last the time since The Brexit referendum, Scotland has mainly focused on avoiding the Brexit that eventually came down the pipe, um, but has missed to put some meat on those bones of declarations that meat has been delivered by people like Anthony and um, it needs to be put into policy to be believable. Everybody can say a thing that sounds nice and entices what appears to be the majority of the voters in in a certain place of the world, but it needs to become actual policy and you need to act like it. fake it until you make it It doesn't need to be a faking thing you can actually start doing the stuff and go to the very line of what you are able to do and in some ways um Scotland is attempting to do that but it's doing that in a very light touch way uh, in terms of aligning itself with EU policy and with some of the standards um I think in terms of data collection there's a big question mark as well and and on many many other areas too i think it's just about implementing policies that align us with the rest of europe at this point and not just saying that we are really friendly about it or we're flying a flag well Anthony, let
1: me bring you in on this end, because there there are a whole lot of there's a whole lot of packaging in there not least the fact that uh, the, um you, that you scotland isn't always in a position to to um, impose european standards on in certain areas and there's another question which has come in just now about what has been known colloquially as the power grab the the uk's single market internal market which means that money which um, should have perhaps gone to the devolved um, administrations has gone to london and is now being rebranded and spent in scotland by the uk government i mean these are all in a sense part of the same argument aren't they
4: um, I think they, they are for us internally. Um, they're not so much in terms of Scotland's engagement with the European Union, in terms of you know, Scotland's relationship with EU member states, with the EU institutions. I think when we come to, to those kinds of questions, that, that that's part of the thing which maybe Ellen was touching on earlier about uh, about how we are engaging with the rest of Europe rather than what we're talking about ourselves. I mean, obviously, the devolution questions are extremely important. You know, I think that, you know, I, I really think they should be we, we, for the kinds of changes that have happened, we would have needed to have had a referendum, in my view, because I think it quite changes from what people voted for in 1997. But anyway, in terms of engaging with the EU, um, you know, they are not really that interested in in the, the devolved debates. You know, it's a question of um, how. So how do you maintain the links? I've read about this a lot. I think you need to focus on how can Scotland build practical relationships with EU countries on areas of mutual interest. These again, bilateral relations are about things that are interesting to the other party, not just talking about, I I think the Scottish government should not talk about independence to any EU member state or to any EU institution. The Scottish government should not talk about independence at all. It's external EU and external engagement. It should focus on things that are, you know, areas where it can really build deep relationships on things that matter. And then Scotland should consider how it will make, you know, try to make strategic contributions to the debates on the future of Europe, obviously, as a part of a third country. And there's nothing wrong with Scotland saying, you know, on the conference on the future of Europe, we will not necessarily be part of that, but there are things that we might want to contribute. Uh, and I think those are spaces where, you know, that, that needs to be the focus of, the, of, of you know, Scotland's engagement with, in the EU from the outside.
1: Well actually that 's um, a good moment to bring in phil who 's saying pre referendum would it make sense for the Scottish government to be engaging in informal talks with representatives of other nations, especially within the EU and with the u s regarding recognition of Scotland as an independent nation following a yes vote and a referendum held without agreement from Westminster Well, um, do you want to take the first bit of, of that argument, Alan that would it make sense for us to be establishing, if you like, our pre-independence credentials with with proposed future partners?
5: Yes, yes it would. I think the only problem the Scottish Government has got is that the UK Foreign Office have uh, decreed that Scottish engagement with international bodies and officials has to go through them. This is one of the moves they've made behind the scenes and uh, uh, Scotland isn't going to be given any kind of budget or resources to try and make its case in the international stage, whereas it could have done through UK diplomatic channels before. Um, So the Scottish government, not being an internationally recognised nation-state government, will only have so much capacity to be able to make its case in the world stage. Uh, Given the chance, I think it should do that, I think those conversations should be had. I think Scottish, potential future Scottish diplomats for an independent Scotland should know in advance that Scotland might be welcomed as a, a, an international country. Uh, but I'm also realistic about Scotland's resources at the moment and how able it is to make that case on the international stage. Anthony seems to have an answer to that. I would love to hear it. I would just, if I could just
4: come in, because, I mean, I, you know, I think we've agreed on a lot throughout this panel, so I suppose it's useful to have a moment of saying that I fundamentally disagree with that, you know, as as an expert on EU international relations, you know, if Scotland, you know, if Scotland were to become independent, you know, all the stuff about state recognition is really important, but that would follow afterwards. What needs to be happening now, in my view, is building, you know, building relationships, but you have to do that on areas that Scotland can talk about, you know, if you go in, as Scottish government say, We'd like to, you know, behind the scenes talk about, you know, how you can recognize this. We become independent. People will clam up and connections will stop and meetings will not happen and nothing will happen and the engagement will fall off a cliff. You know, but if you come in and say, we, we're here to talk about, we're not here to talk about independence. We, you know that we're having our independence debate and, you know, whatever, but we're here to talk about climate change. We're here to talk about renewable energy. We're here to talk about whatever. That, that is how you build the relationships. That's how you get people to talk. As soon as you introduce independence, it shuts off.
5: That, that, that is um, uh, real interesting and I'm sure that's true. I mean, I, I've no doubt you know more about these things than me, but the difficulty that we have is that the Scottish people will want to hear assurances from international bodies or figures that Scotland would be, would be accepted as part of the EU, otherwise well, the Scotland minimum. can't advance that case.
4: We're never, never, never going to get that, so I guess we're going to have to come with better arguments. Okay, fair enough, fair
1: enough. Ellen's been trying to get in for a while, and, and yeah. I think we'd also like to hear afterwards from Neil as to as to what kind of reception he thinks we might get on whatever basis in Europe. Ellen first.
3: Right, so I think both of you are making valid points, and I think I'm going to take it on from Anthony's argument and say, Scotland has something that the world is currently desperately looking for. We have nine years left to turn around this global crisis, you know, around climate emergency and the the warnings need to be heeded. Scotland has enormous in- renewable energy potential and there actually is in Scotland for Commonwealth, a very detailed and costed plan on the table how to go about a Green New Deal for Scotland. The need to become independent is implicit in how to finance the Green New Deal, but the resources and the technology and the knowledge in order to make such Green New Deals happen is available in Scotland. And this is deeply interesting to people in Europe and further abroad, they're already looking at Scotland's green resources and are buying them up because the Scottish Government is putting them up for sale, right? that's not how I would go about it but this is how you start getting people onto the table if in the course of that conversation you then come to constitutional issues that's a different way of going about it. Other than going here, I'd like to speak to your ambassador at 4 p.m. about independence in Scotland and whether you'll say yes if we go whatever route we choose. It's about recognizing what Scotland has in resources and that includes physical resources, but also intellectual resources and plans and ideas for collaboration. So that's the one half. The other half is that no other country could be more interested in Scotland, what Scotland is doing, other than when it looks at what Scotland is doing with the citizens of those countries. Right. I can, mean, can, if, if you're going can, to want to, sorry Ruth, but if you want the empathy of EU citizens on the continent, maybe start prioritising EU citizens within Scotland. Let's, it's let's that just, kind
1: of thing. Let's, let's just ask somebody who actually deals with the EU all the time and was actually on the committee for the regions, Neil. I mean, there, there's two different schools of thought here, as you can tell, whether Which door you knock on and when you knock, which request you put in. So give us some advice, please.
2: Yeah, well, I suppose, I suppose I'm going to paint a picture of what Scotland's doing at the moment, and I think possibly it's not um, fully understood, but the Scottish government has a wonderful emerging diplomatic network, as is. Alan's right, it's in the gift of the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, but the Scottish government has a good office here in Dublin. Not only is the Scottish government's head of office a Scot, so is the British British ambassador, which is a convenient coincidence, but they also have offices like that in France, in Germany, in Brussels. We've got Scotland House and of course in Canada and this development and Stephen Geffen's the former MP is about to produce a book on this and I know Anthony I spoke to you um, quite some time ago about this issue when you were in Dublin with Joan and um, I think this is where the key issue for Scotland is Um, don't run in and say we want to talk about our constitution status let's work on the bilateral relationships that are already there there is a big Irish oh, diaspora. no know. Yeah, I know, I know. Um, because there's no point asking if the EU officially or the Irish government is officially not gonna give you an answer. Um, and this is where it comes down to the internal dynamics of Scottish and British politics, sort that out and then it'll be sorted out on the global stage. As I've always said a hundred times, if Scotland are gonna vote uh, to be independent, they'll be within the EU as quick as they want to be. And the same with the UN. But crucially, what Scotland can and should be doing at the moment is building up its bilateral diplomatic imprint within British embassies. It is very distinct. You literally turn a corridor in the British embassy in Dublin and you know you're in the Scottish government section. The the furnishings are different. There isn't a union jack in sight. It's saltires everywhere. The receptions are held deliberately off site. I was at a wonderful virtual burn supper uh, only a few weeks ago. And I know this sounds a bit twee, but this is how diplomacy works. And this is how the EU reacts very well to And And um, Ellen's right. I want to know that the couple of hundred thousand Irish citizens, and I know that's how many there is because they keep applying for Irish passports, um, living in Scotland are being looked after. And I've no doubt they are. But crucially, the couple, tens of thousands of Scottish citizens living in Ireland are being looked after too. But I think Scotland has a very many success stories to sell. Ireland has distinct interests in working in Scotland when it comes to higher education um, economic interests, financial services, uh, exporting our dairy goods, all our butter. So you continue to make shortbread. But crucially, and this is one thing that I'm really annoyed and a lot of you would have seen the announcement about the Turing scheme today, um, the the diet version of Erasmus, Um, Irish language students only have one place where they can go and learn uh, as part of Erasmus or only had one place and that was to go to Scotland. But that valve is now gone. And I have great friends who were able to study in St Andrews and University of Aberdeen, Glasgow, Edinburgh, all these places, and it's gone. And it's now working to see, well, what is the alternative? How can the Scottish government independently get Scotland to take a part of Erasmus? The Welsh government are interested in as well. We're, we're more than happy to cover the cost of Northern Irish institutions doing it. But it's those sorts of bilateral key issues. That's where the focus should be. Resolve those. And then when the big question gets asked and the Scottish people make their decision, everything else is very straightforward. We're not in 2014, the UK has left the EU and that is the crucial difference.
1: Unfortunately they did try to stay in Erasmus and were, and were given, as we see in Glasgow, a dizzy by the, uh, the UK government. There's an interesting question here um, from Anne so who's asking what would happen if um, England wanted to leave the Union and this is not as daft a question as it sounds because um, I was talking to somebody who's just written a book about this and they were saying that while england had not been very interested in devolved regional government it was very interested in an english parliament and very interested in having um an english and increased english identity so it's actually possibly um a runner um for all kinds of reasons um you're nodding anthony
4: if someone else wants to answer i'm I'm very happy but no i just uh I, i don't i mean there's always the challenge of of how do you deal with the fact that England is so big in terms of you know the UK by 80-85% of the population so you know uh I I don't have an answer on whether there should be an English parliament or whether there should be regional parliaments obviously they tried the regional assemblies and then they were rejected and so on so it's complex but
1: the argument against um federalism was always because it would be asymmetric for the very reasons you've just articulated because England's so big however um if England wants to have an English parliament and Scotland wants to have a Scottish parliament, that would seem to me quite a neat solution.
3: Um, I actually, sorry, I wrote an article with or a series of articles together with the Common Green from Commonweal about this. It's called this pressure series. And we went through the various instances of nonviolent campaigning um, at home within the UK top context and the international context, and one of those points was for the, you know, for the UK white context very clearly is about solidarity and how it can be used. We want to leave the UK, but that doesn't mean we we are going to leave with a door slamming, and if we want to do it in a in a way that makes sense, then solidarity can be expressed through the progress that has been made through the devolved governments in the respective places, Um, not least Ireland and Northern Ireland, which have gotten their parliament just about back very recently, but also Wales and um, Scotland's achievements. The appetite for a devolved government, I think, is there in England, but England currently is extremely challenged to find uh, a bunch of left leaning politicians and activists to pull into the same direction together and they have been for quite some time so that sort of solidarity might be very well placed because it takes the focus off how bad Scotland and Wales are for wanting to leave the union and puts pressure on the lack of democracy where it is you know the biggest within the UK the only part of the UK that doesn't have a devolved government is England and they have a real lack of local democracy in a way that we can't even imagine anymore.
1: Alan, you've very deliberately left yourself unmuted, so does that mean you want to say say something?
5: Uh, I do. Um, To respond to Neil's point, and I absolutely understand where he's coming from in terms of the international community's perspective and the EUs and Ireland's, which is that everything is waiting for you should you resolve these internal differences with the UK. I think the problem that we've got is that a lot of people in Scotland were hoping for international support to put pressure on the UK government to recognise their independence. It seems for everything I've heard tonight, we should not expect that, which means we've got a very difficult journey. Neil's, Neil's um, shown us the prize, mm. and, uh, and I appreciate that support, that should you become independent, the international community will accept you. But what I'm not hearing is any help
2: Alan, it's very, very delicate balance. You know, what's the difference between offering help and support and encouragement and having a direct involvement? As well, what happens if we were to turn around and say the opposite, say, well, we'd much rather Scotland stay within the UK because it makes it easier for us. But I think one issue, and if you don't mind, Ruth, and I know you're the compare, but Alan has touched on it, Alan has touched on it, and Anthony has touched on it, and it's one of the diff- most difficult issues that an early independent Ireland face, and once again, Ireland faces now is the biggest relationship for Scotland in the global world. I very much have no doubt that an independent Scotland will be in the EU and accepted at the UN, Arctic Council, NATO if it wants to, but it's then defining its relationship with what remains of the UK. And that has been the perennial challenge for Ireland throughout our independence. Bear in mind, before we joined the EEC, an Irish Taoiseach trying to get a, minute, a meeting with the British Prime Minister was extremely rare. We had a much better hearing in France or in the US, um, but common membership of the EEC made us equal. It mightn't have been on a number scale, but I tell you, the British government found out in the last few years what equality looks like. And I think that is the one thing, it's to resolve what relationship do you want. Now, I want a a good relationship between Ireland and the UK. It's in both of our interests. There's 800,000 Irish citizens living in England, um, including my auntie, my uncle and most of my cousins. And I want them to prosper mightily. And lots of my friends move there. And there's that transfer of people and power and capital and everything else. British government isn't making that very easy at the moment. That's unfortunately nothing I can do with that. But Scotland, when they talk about Scotland's place in the world, Scotland's place in Europe, I can't recommend enough is to try and start off, as Ellen says, by not slamming the door and realise that as much as you can't choose your family, you can't choose your neighbours a lot of the time and it's always in everyone's interest to try and form the most amicable relationship possible. And the viewpoint of a current British government, and I was on a very similar call last night, a university debate about a united Ireland, and the differences in opinions of the tone of a British government can change very quickly. And I think that always needs to be bear in mind. And whilst we're having huge difficulty with Lord Frost and others, we know if that would happen to be Louise Hay or Lisa Nandy or someone like that, or even give it a throwback to Julian Smith, it would have been very different um, different kettle of fish. So I think that's worth bearing in mind that no one's touched upon the most important relationship for Scotland in the world, as much as people might necessarily like to say it, is
5: looking down south as well. Can I, can I ask Ellen and Anthony and Neil, what would be your advice to Scotland, or the Scottish independence movement rather, in order to try and get the British government to recognise our right to self determination,
2: win the elections in May, win the Westminster elections, and um, don't tear yourselves apart at the same time.
4: I think the, the, the issue of, of the majority is going to be a big difference for Westminster. I mean, in terms of if the SNP or wherever get majority, don't get majority. I mean, really, that shouldn't make a difference. If there's a majority of the Scottish Parliament of however many parties that want a referendum, there should be a referendum. You know, But I think it will make a big difference to the psyche of Westminster, whether or not there's a majority government asking for a referendum and can say it's just like 2011 and so on.
3: Ellen? I would say start thinking about the kinds of pressure that can be applied, whether it's civil disobedience or civil obedience, to be obedient in the most annoying way possible, all of that ups the pressure. and. Uh, We should be doing a lot of that, because as long as it's easier to say no to Scotland than it is to say yes, the relationship that we're dealing with here is one that is of a power imbalance.
1: Can I ask you, Ellen, um, there's, um, there's always an argument about this in terms of civil disobedience making a difference, or civil disobedience, to use a technical term, pissing everybody off?
3: Uh, I think the argument has really shifted in the last 20 years because 20 years ago people kept saying oh it's not going to change anything you know you're just going to have to get out your fists and then smash them into somebody else's face. So it's nice that we're moving on from that part of the argument Um, it's turning out that civil disobedience and civil obedience are two different paths that make it a multitude times more likely for civil movements to succeed in the world and that's increasing still in trend Um so it's a worthwhile tool using, and it's especially a tool worth using when you are experiencing a power imbalance. We can be nice, but we can also be less cooperative. If you would like to deal with nice us, maybe treat us better.
1: We're going to take another question now, which is
3: completely separate
1: from what we've been discussing, which is a question, again, I think it's from an Anne, asking whether or not we should join the Nordic Union, not instead of the EU, but as well as the EU. Anthony? Anthony?
4: I think it makes sense for Scotland to have a close relationship with the Nordic Council and obviously the Nordic States. I've I've suggested that there should be a strategic partnership agreement between the Nordic States, be that directly with the Nordic Council, otherwise in Scotland. But I I don't really see Scotland being a member of the Nordic Council, at least not initially, given obviously the members, you know, have much closer links, particularly linguistically and so on. Uh, But obviously, you know, uh, if you think about Scotland engaging in the European with the, the Nordic countries that are in the EU, the three of them, um, you know, uh, Nordic countries and Nordic Baltic countries, and also Ireland, you know, really be really important partners for Scotland in, in terms of forming coalitions and trying to drive progress in the EU. So really important, but I don't see Scotland joining the Nordic Council.
1: New?
2: Yeah, I think this is actually a really good point, and it shows the opportunities, and it's something the Irish government are pursuing too. We're observer status of the Arctic Council. We're now in the Francophonie. Um, we're in the Mediterranean Alliance, You know, slightly selective geographic interpretation of the sea that runs south to us. But all these things are important, and it's all about relationship building. And just because you're not in the EU doesn't mean you can't be part of those relationships. So within the EU, we have the new Hanseatic League and the Hanseatic League, and the Norwegians feed into that a lot because there's a lot of common areas of interest. And certainly this is where I talk about the existing um, bilateral uh, work that the Scottish government is doing and I got to a stage a couple of years ago when I was sick of seeing Mike Russell in Dublin he was over every second week and it was always a very pleasant conversation and it was grand but you know what I mean it's using that constantly and Scottish government ministers are not and cabinet secretaries are very well accept, well respected abroad and um, regardless of their political affiliations they are seen as competent and they are seen as engaging and appreciating scotland's place in the world and i remember when he was the relevant minister ben mcpherson made a very powerful speech in relation to um eu EU nationals being welcome to remain in scotland and that like that transferred over and got into irish media and went down very well from so that's why i talk about the importance of scottish ministers maximizing the bilateral ties that they have there already and one of the things that we learned that has stood to us most importantly, was during the economic crisis, we like everyone had a bit of a a fire sale cutting down our diplomatic ties, but we maintained an embassy in every single EU member state. And that was really important during the Brexit process. Before the British government had a single meeting with another EU member state, the Irish government, you're gonna think I'm making this up. They had 1500 different bilateral meetings with other EU member states and EU institutional stakeholders showing that the biggest problem in withdrawal is the situation that the only land frontier remaining is on the island of Ireland. The Scottish Government have a wonderful office in Dublin. I think it has five staff. Imagine I had one of those in every single member state and then the ones that are crucial, um, Brussels, Berlin, Paris, probably Copenhagen given the geography, the Hague and Dublin. Imagine they had 20 staff. It can do it. It has the resources to do it. It has the, the bricks and mortar to do it and I think that is... That feeds into things like the the Nordic Union, the Arctic Council, the Francophonie, Mediterranean Alliance might be a bit of a stretch, but sure look, we'll consider you all the same. We votes there.
1: Thanks, New Ellen. The question was whether or not we should join the Nordic Union as well as the European
3: Union. I think okay. good relations are good no matter, you know, what you're doing. There is a geographic similarity between Scotland and the other Nordic countries as well as Ireland, but you don't have to all play the same game to be having a games night together. Um, Maybe just all have fun playing. I'm gonna move
1: on because um, we stopped taking questions because they're coming in thick and fast and we're dirty about all over the shop. So I want to um, wind up this evening by asking you all basically the same question. I want to ask you whether or not you think Scotland will become an independent country and in what time scale? And I'll start with you, Anthony.
4: Do I think people vote for independence at in the next referendum? Uh, yes, I do. Uh, and when would a referendum happen? Uh, I think that you know, if there's a majority for independence, which I imagine would be at the, le- the, ele- the election in May, that a referendum might happen in 2022, or perhaps maybe a bit later. But I don't see one happening this year, regardless of what happens.
1: Let me just ask a supplementary. Assuming that um, there is a referendum for the sake of argument in 2022, Um, Do you think a yes vote will be achieved this time?
4: Me, yes. Yes, I do. I do think there'll be a majority for independence.
1: Neil, I know you don't live here, and um, you're looking on from afar, but you're one of our closest and most valued neighbours, so you've probably got an opinion on it.
2: Yeah, I can see an independent Scotland returning to the EU by 2030. I think Scotland will be independent before Ireland is united.
1: That's a very interesting point. Can I also ask you then if you think Ireland will be united and in what timescale?
2: hopefully within my lifetime, but we have much more difficult conversations to have, to be honest.
1: Curiously enough, that's the timescale I'm worried about in my lifetime as well. Ellen?
3: Yeah, I think there can be no, no real doubt about whether Scotland would vote for independence now. I think it's up to the Scottish government as well as the independence campaign to make that case, but we have everything to play for and all the you know, momentum on our side in terms of timescale. Hmm. I'm not as optimistic, though I would love to be. I don't see the, the basic pillars put into place at the moment that are required. I know there's some discussion about whether a white paper is needed or not, but when you say that you're going to produce one and then you don't, the, that to me doesn't ring off delivering um, the promises. And that's why I'm after several times of being marched up the hill, fairly dubious about marching up another hill every year from here on until it maybe happens. So uh, I'd like to see it as soon as possible. I've been saying that for years. I'm waiting to be convinced because I know at that point we'll all pull together and make it happen. Alan?
5: I think it's going to be very difficult for Britain to say together. I think Britain as a concept is bound by the monarchy, the political architecture of the United Kingdom, uh, colonialism, all of these things are falling. They really are, they're falling. And there's such a centrifugal force, I think unleashed by Brexit, but is not limited to Brexit, that means what we understand as the British Isles is uh, about to go through a transformation that we're only now just starting to see the first glimpses of, uh, the pandemic one, Uh, impact on that. The coming economic recession on the back of the last economic recession will impact on that. Um, I think it's only a matter of time before Britain fails. However, I don't yet know what the mechanism for Scotland to achieve its independence yet will be.
1: Okay, well, listen, um, congratulations, everybody, on being the only broadcast that's gone out to the nation in the last forty hours, which hasn't at any juncture mentioned, Harry and Meghan. I'm really very grateful to you for all of that. I'm very grateful to everybody's contribution, and I'm very grateful to all the people who were kind enough to tune in to us tonight. Um, uh, yes, Eastern is just along the road from me here in, in Argyll, and um, onwards and upwards for all of the Yes groups all over Scotland. Um, not next year in Jerusalem maybe, but maybe the year after thank you very much everybody
0: You've been listening to Yes Group Spotlight on Indie Live Radio this week featuring Yes, Kirk and Tillich Lindsay and the Villagers panel discussion and independent Scotland in the world and once again we're grateful to Yes, Kirk and Tillich for sharing that event with us if your Yes Group is doing an event which you'd like to be considered for the Yes Group Spotlight, get in touch with us on studio at indialive.radio and hopefully we can help bring your event to a wider audience and get it broadcast on the radio and also up on our podcast channels as well. Thanks for listening.
2: IndiaLive.